Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Redemption Podcast. My name is Andrew, and I'm here with Steven, my co-host. Hey there, guys. This podcast is for patriots who are sick of typical news and politics talking points, but still want to save America. Exactly. What we need is action. So on American Redemption, we're going to look at the root causes of societal decay and give you the tools you need to save America as you go about your day-to-day life. Hello and welcome to a special American Redemption podcast episode. We are now on episode 13, as Andrew has just reminded me. And today we have a very great show for you guys today. We have our friend Megan on today to talk about the pro-life movement. Andrew and Megan most recently went to the March for Life, and they are going to share with us today their experiences, how we can argue for the pro-life movement, and yeah, take it away, guys. Hey, everyone. Thanks for coming on, Megan. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're a pro-life advocate? Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, my name's Megan. I am a recent graduate from like these two friends of mine on the call. And um, I'm very much, um, I, I'm very ardently passionate about the pro-life movement and I have been for quite some time. Um, I don't really recall a time when I wasn't pro-life. I don't quite have a story either. A lot of folks have stories of conversion, stories of why they're pro-life. And I think I attribute a lot of my pro-life advocacy towards my Catholic faith, which I was so, so very blessed to be growing up in, to have the support of my family, to have the truth uh, shown to me early in my life through Catholic school and through my family life. And so in that schooling and in that experience, I definitely was shown God's love and shown the dignity that I have as an individual, as being a daughter of God and the dignity that everybody else has as being his children. And so understanding that dignity, I found it appalling how this evil of taking someone's life, namely the most innocent, most vulnerable of our society, not only our preborn or unborn children, but also the elderly and those that are, are killed through euthanasia, uh, which I think the majority of our discussion today will be for um, centered around abortion, because that tends to be the, the more I don't want to say pressing because it's all important, but the the more talked about issue. So understanding the evils that occur there and the taking of that precious dignity and that precious life just always drove me to fight for life and to fight for the most vulnerable. And it's really hard to do that in this society when, as you guys have talked about very often, that so much rhetoric is put out there to make us think otherwise. So the pro-life movement is near and dear to my heart. I had a good friend in high school actually who started a Students for Life club at our public high school. And I joined, and like I said, I don't quite remember a time when I wasn't pro-life. I just remember, I think, learning about the horrors of abortion and was and it instantly struck a chord with me. And so I was thrilled when my friend was had, had informed me more about the movement, more about what we can do, even as high school kids at the time. And then the next year I took it over from him when he graduated and we did work for the community and we, we worked to educate some of our fellow classmates and it was a really great experience. And I took a little bit of a break from that support of the direct support of the movement in college when I was focusing on my studies at Penn State. And then now as a professional working individual, I, I now find myself with more free time to focus in on what I think is an essential issue and quite frankly, an issue that I feel we cannot rest until this is until abortions eradicated in our country and in our world. So that's a yeah, little bit about my I'm pro-life. Go ahead. Yeah, abortion was one of the first political topics I learned about um, when I was just sort of getting into that sort of thing when I was in high school. And I remember just thinking that this was so plainly evil. I don't know how, any, how anyone could support it, which leads into a question I think would be good for us to discuss. Uh, how much of the pro-choice movement is motivated by evil and how much of it is just people who are ignorant because i think it's clearly the most evil thing in the world today is abortion especially when you 
learn about how the procedure is done. There's, it's just undeniable. So some people truly are motivated by evil, but then others I think are just ignorant. But it's hard to say that's really the case and, and really how much of the movement of the pro-choice movement is made up of those two camps. So what do you guys think? Yeah, and I don't think there's necessarily a percentage line. I will say, of course, there are evil actions in this world. There are sins. And I do want to specify and by saying that people, we as humans, are not inherently evil. I believe us to be inherently good because we're created by a God who is all good and all loving. And we're created in his image and likeness, too. And what's essential about this movement that I think is also overlooked is that everyone is created for unity and community and love with God and with others. And that validates our dignity as human beings. And the fact that we're even made in his image and likeness validates our dignity from conception to natural death. And knowing of that dignity, it's very apparent why the devil, why the evil one would want to slaughter that dignity and would want to do that in the, the most grotesque, grotesque and gruesome ways possible. And I so true, so true. <laughs> thank you, Stephen. Yeah, and, and and truly, I mean, it is a work of evil. And I don't want to say that the people performing those acts or who have who call themselves pro-choice or support abortion are evil because we are made in the image and likeness of God, and we are called to holiness and communion with Him. And God doesn't intend for evil to happen, but He loves His creatures so much that He imparts free will upon us. And so, of course, we have original sin. Of course, we have evil that lurks throughout the world, and we do succumb to that evil, right? And so because we are imperfect, we are influenced by the enemy, and he is the one behind these. And I mean, in our own experience, I know Andrew and I have prayed outside of abortion clinics together even, there's definitely demonic works happening on those grounds. And a lot of people, I think, deny the existence of angels and demons. It's not very talked about a lot, in my opinion, but they really do exist. And even in our St. Michael the Archangel prayer, we pray, defend us in battle, be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. See, the devil sends these falsehoods into our minds, and we can talk more about their rhetoric and how I think that inundates, inundates the rhetoric of today's society. But also in that prayer, we say, um, we say, Saint Michael, the, the archangel, defend us in battle. Be our defense against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him. We humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the Heavenly Host, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. See, when uh, and that line just there validates how there are demons that prowl about the world, and they they want to ruin us. They want to harm us and have us fall into sin and into the enemy's traps. So I will say, I don't believe that people are evil, but we do succumb to evil and we do succumb to the evil one. And there are, of course, people who are ignorant too. And I myself fell into, I think, some sort of nonchalant state, state about certain issues in our politics and in our society because Frankly, I'm not just I'm just not as interested, and I think it's a running joke amongst our friends that I only really work for the for a life movement, and that's my only political uh, that's only that's my only political stance, and which it, it isn't necessarily true, especially as of late. But it's definitely my most important one I gravitate towards. So I think having um, but having the knowledge of that dignity. And, and having the knowledge of the horrors of what goes on definitely moves people to act in one way or another. And I think um, that's another reason some people are so pro-abortion is maybe they have had an abortion themselves or have encouraged a, a loved one to get an abortion. And sometimes when we do things that are wrong, we really try to defend it at all costs because it's really painful to unlock that wound and to unsurface that and to acknowledge that. It's wrong. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. If I would put numbers on it, I would say maybe 5 to 10% of people are uh, truly 
coming into this with bad intentions, I would say 90 to 95% are ignorant. And it goes back to the point that you exactly just made. People do not like to make qualms with the fact that they've done wrong. When previously in our society, when Christian morality was pushed, repentance was pushed. But in our society today, people aren't allowed to repent. The you'll get cru- you'll get crucified figuratively in 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 the media, and you'll be slandered by a bunch of people. And repentance is not pushed at all in our society. So I think you honed in on a lot of great points there. Yeah, thanks. I, I think um, I think repentance is also um, a part of our faith that yeah we do overlook and. Um, I know confession is a wonderful and reconciliation is a wonderful um, source of grace that at least Catholics can tap into and that we can uh, find as a source of strength. And that's what's so good about God and his mercy is that it's always available. And it definitely shows and it encourages us to also be compassionate. And that's something I want to emphasize throughout our discussion as well is that these things are hard. I mean, I personally have never... I've never been pregnant. I've never been faced with this kind of decision, with this kind of responsibility of of motherhood. And I can't even imagine what it's like for some women and their partners, the fathers of these children, what, what they might be going through if they're in a tough financial situation or if there's domestic abuse. Unfortunately, a lot of these situations are born from domestic abuse and it's really heartbreaking. And so having compassion for these women, especially who just don't know what to do sometimes. And I've heard a number of personal stories from individual women. And I'm going to reference this book throughout our discussion too, but Janet Morana writes a really striking novel. It's called Recall Abortion. And I'll send this to you guys afterwards with a foreword by Father Frank Pavone, who's a very strong pro-life advocate. She includes dozens of stories, firsthand stories from women who have had abortions, women who have worked on Planned Parenthood and have come out with just horror stories of their experiences. And a lot of those are pulled from what's called the Silent No More campaign. You can find it online. It's a campaign. It's a source for women to speak out about their experiences. And maybe even some men too. I can't recall if she had stories from men, mostly women, but incredibly, incredibly heart-wrenching stories that I've just shed so many tears reading through. So understanding that compassion and how that ties in with God's mercy is also essential as well. Yeah, I I like how you talked about coming at this from a point of compassion because we have to be compassionate to people. These are people that need God and and need God's God's mercy. You you standing and and shouting someone down isn't going to make them make a correct decision or a morally right decision. These are people who need your prayers. And like you said, they might be physically broken or financially broken. They're also spiritually broken in in that sense, if they're really considering something that's, that's that morally repugnant. So they do need your prayers and they do need your support. And you need to cheer people on to do the right thing. That's one of the whole problems that we have with abortion is that the the state is coming in and creating things like Planned Parenthood that are cheering people on to do morally wrong things. All we're looking to do is have a, a fair playing field to cheer on people to do morally right things, uh, save their, their children's lives and save their souls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Amen. Yeah. And prayer is really powerful. And something I'll mention later on and and maybe calls different calls to action we can perform. But to your point about the state controlling a lot of this, I mean, it's the media as well. And that's no secret, I think, on this podcast and on and on many podcasts that cover these kinds of issues is that these people succumb to this falsehood. Like I said, the, the devil places these falsehoods in our midst and he makes us believe that they're truth 
when we're in desperate circumstances. And even if we're not, it's what the culture pushes, right? Planned Parenthood, take the pill. Now there's abortions by mail, which is horrifying. People can have at-home abortions mailed to them. Just, and these medical abortion pills are the new wave of destruction for this form of genocide. And it's very, um, we need to, to uh, tap down on this as soon as possible. Um, so yeah, good points about a compassion there. Um, it's very important to treat these people well, but we also need to remember to be bold. For some reason, the pro-life movement is kind of looked at as this, like this view that is, it's um, so controversial that people are afraid to be openly pro-life, which is so sad. I mean, I know it's tough for me too. At work, I, I didn't tell people I was going to the March for Life because I was worried about how they would how they would uh, treat me in the workplace after, you know, it's, it's so sad that we have to be like that, but we need to be bolder. And I think the conclusion from this question is really that most people are probably just ignorant. I think some definitely are evil. I had an experience protesting at a Planned Parenthood, some good, some bad reactions, but one that really stood out was this woman who drove by and just cackled like a witch or something all the way down the street. Like you could hear a block away. It's crazy. But since most people are just ignorant, that pre presents a real opportunity for changing their mind. So our next question for Megan is, if you find yourself in a debate, how do you persuade the other person to become pro-life or even outside of debate setting? If you're just talking with a friend or if you're posting something on social media, you know, whatever. Yeah, and that's a really strong and important question to ask because when you break it down the arguments are very simple and the questions that one needs to ask to obtain the conclusion necessary to understand which side is is telling the truth is very simple but one book i want to particularly stand out or i want to highlight rather and that stood out to me when i read it is called persuasive pro-life by trent horn this is an incredible read. I've read through it twice and I'm still no expert because his arguments are very detailed. And the, the comprehensiveness of this book really is astonishing to me because he goes through all different kinds of pro-choice advocates that you can come across in conversation. So talking to pragmatists, people who are just asking about the circumstances and they think abortion should be legalized to accommodate said circumstances. Those who tolerate evil, the tolerant, people who distract you from the main issue, and also people who are skeptical of who they are of excuse me, who and what the unborn actually are. So he and so those and a number of other and even in the appendix talks about people who actually do believe that abortion and infanticide even are valid options for treating life. And so he's incredibly thorough, and I'm certainly not going to touch on each one of his different situations, but I think one of the key points that we come across whenever we're discussing abortion with a pro-choice advocate is what are the unborn? And, and really not even that, but all the circumstances surrounding that, right? Like a lot of people like to dance around that question of what the unborn are, because I think we know, and for the purposes of this conversation, I think it's safe to assume that everyone agrees we shouldn't kill human beings, right? It doesn't even matter what your religion is, what society you're from. I mean, of course, there are crazy exception, exceptions that we see where people do think that murdering someone else is valid, but we typically engage with people who think that is wrong. And so for that purpose of our conversation, we'll, we'll keep it to that. And so understanding how do we get from the questions of, oh, what if someone's in poverty? What if someone was raped? What if someone just can't afford to have another child or it's just inconvenient for them? All these things. We need to hone in on the question, what are the unborn, right? Because then once we get to that question, that's when all else can be answered. So I do want to share a method that Trent Horn shares in his book. And again, I'll share this book title and author information with you um, because I really recommend it. But it's called Trot Out a Toddler. Basically, if we compare an unborn child or a fetus to a toddler, 
all of these questions seem to go away and, and it, the the argument of what are the unborn becomes so much clearer. So the first thing one needs to do when using this method of coming to that central question is to one, and might sound crazy, but agree, agree with your opponent. And the reason you do that is not just to gain some grounding or ethos in the argument, but generally try to be empathetic. Again, going back to compassion, maybe they have an experience with abortion that's personal for them, or maybe they know someone who's in that situation or just have compassion for those who are poor and find themselves in domestic abuse. And we, we should all have compassion for those individuals. So agreeing that yes, their situation, whatever it may be, must be difficult. And it must be a challenging circumstance. They find themselves in with an unplanned pregnancy and not knowing how to take care of a child. So agreeing, but then quickly, quickly moving on to the step two, which is applying that situation. So whatever situation your opponent, the pro-choice advocate proposed, say for this for this situation, we'll, we'll say they use something related to poverty. The woman is can't afford to have another child. So agreeing that that circumstance is hard, but also saying, well, say this woman has two other children, two toddlers, and she's struggling to put food on the table for them, right? You can even put your hand out you know, if you're speaking with someone in person, put your hand out to reference a, a toddler, you know, to, to put that image in their head and say, shouldn't she be able to kill her toddler to accommodate these circumstances? And then, of course, you would assume your opponent to say, well, no, that's absurd. That's that's evil. That's you can't do that. And then you ask why. And it might seem silly, right? It might seem very blatantly obvious, but those are the kind of questions we have to ask. So asking why that's wrong. Why is it wrong to take the life of a toddler? Well, the toddler is human. The toddler has dignity. The toddler has a right to life. The toddler is innocent. And you say, aha, see, that's where we disagree on what the unborn are. So you, so your opponent is essentially saying that the unborn does not have the same rights, dignity, or identification as a human being as that toddler does. So trotting out a toddler in that situation, whatever circumstance your opponent presents as to why abortion should be legal, is a great way to bring back the question of what are the unborn, regardless of whatever other political, social, or economic situations one can propose in this kind of circumstance. Does that make sense? Is that kind of a decent tool, you think? Yeah, I think that's a good method because it, it really gets right down to the core of the argument, which is what is an unborn baby? And fortunately, all of the science is on our side. And I think if someone was shown what's really going on in an abortion, what a, a baby looks like, even at just 12 weeks, they see that it is clearly a human, maybe even earlier than that. I don't know how a reasonable person would not change their mind right there on the spot. Yeah, I think this is a great tool to get for the people who we would put in the ignorant category because they kind of see it as an out of sight, out of mind issue, and it's not really my affair. But by the trot out the toddler method, you're putting a visual right in their, in their head. And it really uh, appeals to their, uh, their emotion. It really does. And any, anyone who's a, a a decent human being can see that as repugnant and a crime. Exactly. And I think the out of sight, out of mind is a difficult argument because it, I mean, we are very limited in our faculties, so to speak, when, when we can't, and that's why ultrasounds are so powerful. There's so much work being done, especially by Knights of Columbus. If you're, you go to a local Catholic parish, so there's usually a Knights of Columbus chapter, and they do so much good work for the community and for pregnancy centers and ordering ultrasound sonograms so that mothers can actually see their, their babies. And the technology that we have is incredible. I mean, I can't even begin to, to brag about how amazing these ultrasound images can be. And like Andrew said, just at, at like such an early stage of fetal development, there are human features that you know we say that's a child that is a human baby and uh it, but we we should not limit ourselves just to visual aids either right because if you do compare a four-week-old fetus to 
uh, to say a tadpole. I mean, there are a lot of similarities and a lot of pro-choice advocates will use that against you. But then you say that, no, this human being really is human. I mean, it has their own set of individual unique DNA that no one else possesses. They have two human parents and science obviously teaches us from day one of of existence of anyone that two parents that sexually reproduce have create an organism that is of their same species. That's just biology for us all. And so asking, they have two parents, right? And they are therefore human, two human parents equals two or equals one, sometimes two <laughs> human organisms as a result of that reproduction and understanding that they are alive. A lot of times people will, will take that off the table and they'll say, oh, well, it can't survive without its mother or it's not alive. Well, to be alive, something has to be growing, something has to be receiving nutrients, something has to be um, reproducing and, and it's, it's coming to that stage of development and, and embryos and, and unborn children grow at very rapid paces, right? And so arguing for the biological side of, of, of that is also really important. And the last part as well, and, and Trent Horn, of course, talks about this, is once you get to that central question of validating and confirming, yes, this is a human living whole organism that is unique in the mother's womb. And the whole organism, a lot of times people will say, oh, well, it's just a clump of cells. But we describe loose collections of things as clumps when the parts do not interact for the good of the whole. And that's a quote directly from Trent Horn in his book. Whereas the clumps or the clump that many refer to inside a mother's womb, the baby, is working together for the good of the whole. So we don't just say a singular skin cell, right, or a singular sperm cell or a singular egg is is alive. Yes, it is human in the, in the sense that it is using the word human as an adjective. Yes, it's a human cell, but it's not inherently and holistically a human, right? Just like saying, you know, a truck is made up of all these different parts. And yes, these might be truck parts, but this one nuts or this one bolt in the truck or in the wheel, it's not a truck. It just makes up part of the truck, right? So again, I'm, I'm pulling a lot from this book because it's it's just layered with with wonderful examples. Does that kind of make sense? So those are ways that we can, those are kind of like sound, that's a quick sound bite is, is, is the fetus alive? Is it human? And is it a whole organism? And you can defend all three of those. Yeah, I think that's very good. Um, I think what someone might say in response to that is they'd say, oh, well, you know, at a week or two or, or even up to, I don't know what, maybe six weeks, they'd say, oh, it can't feel anything and it's got no brain and no heart. I don't know when um, the brain and the heart start to form, but they, they point to things like that. They say it can't feel anything, can't remember anything, can't feel anything. Um, and I know like for sure the the point about them not being able to feel anything is uh, – not even true for very long, but what do you say to arguments like that? Well, we can also talk about um, this other acronym I wanted to bring into play. I love these little acronyms Trent Horn gives us. They're just so useful, and <laughs> they're really I good. I hate, I hate acronyms. You hate acronyms. This trot out the toddler one. How is how is it, the acronym he gives us is, is tote? I don't know how I'm gonna remember tote better than <laughs> trot out trot out a toddler. Well, you can just think but, about uh, toddler. Right. I think I think comparing one situation to how they would treat their toddler is generally what, what that's about. I agree. So this one might be a little easier for you, though. I'll, I'll, I'll try to persuade you on this one. But another acronym Trent gives us is SLED, S-L-E-D. That's a little easier to remember, I think. And I think that can combat the argument that you proposed where, you know, the fetus can't hear, can't see, can't remember anything. Well, an infant also can't remember most things. They have the sentience of a right. cow. And that's a, I'm quoting that again from his book, because they do. We don't remember when we were infants. We couldn't process emotions. We couldn't process memory, or we didn't have any sort of intellectual faculties that warranted the, the ability to make decisions. That doesn't come for years. <laughs> and so this, this acronym SLED in particular draws us to that and helps us to come to, to truth about 
what do different stages of development mean? So SLED stands for size, stands for level of development, environment, and then degree of dependency. So we can also defend the humanity of the unborn, again, by oftentimes comparing them to infants, because even an infant relies on their mother and father for nourishment. Even an infant requires a safe environment. So going through each one of these size, we certainly can't say that size dictates the dignity that a human has. That would be like saying that a man who is larger than his wife has more dignity than she does or has more right to life than she does. And that's absurd. Same thing with adults versus children. That would be like saying adults who are larger than children have more dignity than they deserve or than, than they do. And that's absurd as well. And so justifying an infant just because the infant, he or she is larger than their previous fetal self in the womb can't justify their, their level of dignity. So that's S. L is level of development. And same, same idea, right? Like when you have an infant, yes, they're more developed than a fetus. But if you think about it, we're all more developed than we used to be, right? Even the brain doesn't stop developing until we're 25, 26 years old. So you can't possibly say that a fetus who, of course, doesn't have all of their parts developed until X number of weeks for certain organs and so forth, that's a natural progression of life, right? Just as we all decay as we age and we eventually die, we have to be, we have to be conceived, we have to grow and develop, and then we eventually age and we quote unquote decay and then, and then we pass. And that's a natural cycle of life. And so one can't just be born and be all, all of a sudden li living. No, there has to be some sort of fertilization that occurs. There has to be some sort of initiation and then growth. It's just how we've all developed. We all started the same way. We all started as single cells, but single unique cells that were created from our parents. All of us were, that's important to remember. The thing, that, the one that gets me in this acronym is environment, E. You certainly cannot tell me that a moment before a child is born, when the child still resides in the womb of a woman, that it is not human, and then have it be born, leave the mother's womb, and all of a sudden become human. That's impossible. How can that be? Even when a child is first born, the child's still attached to, to their mother via the umbilical cord, and in a way still is part of that environment that they developed in. Likewise, you have infants or rather premature children who are often born, or not often, but when they are born at 21, 22, 23 weeks, they're in critical condition. But yet we have technology that resembles the womb of a woman in incubators and NICU technology that allows us to resemble that tech, that, excuse me, that environment that they're developing in, in their mother's womb. And so environment certainly doesn't dictate the person's humanity because then once a child's a premature child is is born at that stage they're rushed to the NICU right and we do everything possible to preserve them and to help them grow and to to keep them in the healthiest state we can in that unnatural state right when they're supposed to still be in the womb so you can't tell me that we can also kill those same humans just when they're undesired right so the last part of that acronym, and I'll wrap this up as well, is um, degree of dependency, which is also, I think, a very clear argument, at least in my mind, because an infant obviously needs their parents. You can't possibly have an infant be born and then presume living without some sort of nourishment through mother's milk or formula, warmth and shelter from their parents, love and care even. And so the same goes for the unborn, as they need that nourishment. So does that make sense? I hope that's another useful tool. Maybe SLED's an easier acronym to remember. Yeah, yeah. And actually, I just I have a suggestion for for Trent Horn. Trot out a toddler. He says tote, but um, if you just drop the A, because who includes A in acronyms? It'd be tot, <laughs> tiny tot kind of thing. Tiny tot. Ah. So clever. <laughs> yeah. Those are those are some really good like logical rational arguments. I think they make a lot of sense. But 
to really change hearts and minds. I, well, that's the changing minds part to change hearts, which I think is much more powerful in the uh, national debate is going to require like a pathological appeal, emotional appeal. So what do you uh, recommend for that kind of discussion? Yeah, I think talking about the stories that women have experienced. And, and like I said before, I, I personally do not have a story, but I've been privileged to, or I feel privileged and honored to have met women who have been in really tough circumstances. Just this past week, I met a woman who is a very strong pro-life advocate in the Philadelphia area where I reside. And she is the director of Genesis Pregnancy Care Center in both Phoenixville and Collegeville, I believe, outside of Philadelphia. She herself had, and she talked. She's told her story openly multiple times, and I've heard, I've heard it twice in the same week, which I was again very privileged to hear because she she tells it so eloquent, eloquently and so bravely. But she was in an abusive relationship in her late teens, early twenties, I believe, and had three abortions, three, and the whole time just felt incredibly dead. And the way she describes it, she describes it almost as in, in a way that you can almost see her soul in in visible form, just, just decaying and darkening. The, the way she describes it, that, that's what I visualize. And it's so poignant when and it moves you to tears because you can just hear the agony of her recounting that story. And she says by the third abortion, she was contemplating suicide because after even just one you you I feel as a mother you feel that innate loss I mean it, it's written in our own DNA as as women to want to preserve and nurture our children at all costs and then to have that be ripped from you whether intentionally or unintentionally and I you know and, and I'm going to go back to this story or rather this this book, a collection of stories, Recall Abortion by Janet Marana, where she, I'm telling you, dozens of stories from the Silent No More campaign. And I almost couldn't possibly pick one, but women talking about the actual procedure, how people in Planned Parenthood treated her, how they treated her before, during, and after the abortion, how women who've worked in Planned Parenthood were explicitly told to never call the unborn child a baby, to never assign it pronouns, he or she, to always refer to it as it, a clump of cells, to use technical terms, you know, dis discard instead of instead of kill, of course, and to instruct, and when one was counseled prior to having an abortion, to instruct that um, if they've had an abortion, to assure the new clients that they were they would be fine, they would be okay. So in place, placing this rhetoric directly in to the minds of women. I mean, Planned Parenthood is out for money. They are just out for profit. And they don't care if you come back. They don't care about if you have, uh, there are even movements of, of people trying to allow abortions to occur in minors without parental consent. I believe there there's just absurd things happening where information can be concealed. And there isn't discussion. I, I think there are some laws where it, it, it legislatures prevent abortion clinics from performing an abortion until a woman has had 24 hours to contemplate, but, but even 24 hours, my gosh, this is a life-changing decision. And so reading through these stories, it's, it is just incredibly profound. Another story, Andrew, I, I might pass this one off to you, but another story to recall um, in, in discussing this with pro-life or, or pro-choice advocates even, and pro-life advocates too, is one from Patricia, Patricia Sandoval. Um, I, Andrew and I actually had the privilege of meeting her back in November at the Philadelphia Pro-Life Union annual fundraiser. And she was the keynote speaker for that evening. Very similar situation to the woman from Genesis I mentioned earlier, where she was also, she, she was not in an abusive relationship, is what I recall from her story, but she did have three abortions and she describes the experience very similarly as feeling quite lifeless by the end of it. And she eventually went to work for Planned Parenthood. She was a bilingual, she is a bilingual speaker and they were hiring for 
counselor that could speak both Spanish and English. And so she signed up without any medical training, without any kind of information within her first week or two of working there. They put her in the operating room to assist the abortionist in the procedure to take the fetal remains, to take the the parts of the dead child into the other room to to count. They had to they had to count, and it, this is a little graphic, but it's the nature of it. They had to count five parts, two arms, two legs, and a body, and a you know the trunk of the the human. And she said, "I couldn't do it." Andrew, I don't know if you'd like to chime in there. I know you heard her story as well. It was very profound. Yeah. Yeah. Those kind of stories are, are very powerful. Um, I remember being struck by the fact that her, her boyfriend wanted to keep the, the baby all three times. I don't th- actually, I think he only knew about the first time and she, she told him that it was a miscarriage. So this was a case where they were willing and able to raise the baby, but she was pressured by her friends and by the culture and by Planned Parenthood to to have this abortion. That she told her boyfriend that she had a a miscarriage, and he was devastated. And yeah, her story was very powerful, talking about the the pressure and and just the evil that happened at Planned Parenthood. So that's a, a good place for us to talk about some uh, some personal experiences that will tie into our call to action call to action slash how to get involved so megan uh, mentioned some of these personal experiences and ways to get involved the stand up for life dinner which occurred in philadelphia uh happens every year i'm sure your city has one of those too something similar the march for life which i attended recently um there's always groups going to like planned parenthood and other abortion clinics to protest slash pray. I think we went during like a 40 days for life event where they were trying to have it staffed with protesters continuously. And yeah, these are all things we need. This is the greatest evil in the world today. So everyone should be furious. This is happening in our country. We can't be one nation under God when something like this is going on. Agreed. Agreed. And I will say, I think one of the most powerful experiences was being right there at, at the abortion clinics. And, and I've had some experiences where I, it really makes your skin crawl, though the energy or the the spiritual forces at play here in these places. And even just the buildings themselves just seem so, so ratchet for a better uh, for, you know, there's definitely a better term for that. It just seems so run down and so uninviting. And it, that's what they are. They're these, they're these clinics that are so off-putting. And when you're on the grounds of, of this property, at least as a, you know, if, if you have these eyes of truth and you, and you walk in with some openness, you, you really feel quite vulnerable. I'll just never forget when we were praying outside the one Planned Parenthood clinic, the, like Andrew mentioned before, the number of people that drove past and, and gave responses. And there weren't even, there wasn't even anyone that came into the clinic a lot of times. And this is also something you can do. You can be a sidewalk advocate where you learn how to talk to these women going in. You can hold pro-life literature or brochures to surrounding pregnancy centers that could be in the area. And a lot of times there's a pregnancy center right down the road from these abortion clinics, which is so paradoxical, but they're also there for a reason, right? As another option as something where one can be nurtured and one can be supported. I, I can't even, and, and hearing, uh, you know, I want to do more. I know there, there's been a lot on my heart specifically lately about just needing to do more. And I, I think in college, I was, I was very focused on other endeavors, other responsibilities and I wish I had done more then but now the urge to to combat this in in different ways I'm not quite sure how the Lord's calling me to do that I've definitely been discerning that because there are so many ways to support this movement as we'll talk about in a few minutes but I've definitely felt the call to action and 
one of the ways that I did that, like I said, a few months ago was praying outside of that, that clinic. And I definitely felt the, the demons that were present there. And I encourage you, if you do pray or go to a Planned Parenthood to perform some sidewalk advocacy or to help support, definitely go with somebody because it is, you definitely want to be safe. And I can't emphasize that enough is that as pro-lifers, we need to make sure that we're also protecting our own lives um, because we're, we also have dignity and we also need to be healthy and safe to stand up for the dignity of others. And so always go with someone, I think, especially even just for the spiritual support. I mean, these cars, there were definitely, uh, there was one woman who just cussed us out, out of her car. One woman who took the time to, to slow down, pull her window down and, and just flip us off and, and just make these really obscene gestures and, and sayings. And it really, it really makes your skin crawl. I know it definitely made my skin, skin crawl and it made me, me jump for lack of a better term. So bring your rosaries too. bring your rosaries. The devil hates Mary and Mary is one of our biggest advocates, if not our most ardent and powerful advocate that we have. So bring your rosaries and, and fight off those demons together. You know, God is on our side, and when one does good works, it's 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 powerful, and it, it will do good. And we oftentimes don't know the good that we do either, right? So having hope in that, and I also have struggled with that. I've also struggled with understanding how can my one prayer, how can my one rosary possibly make a difference? Well, we don't necessarily know, but sometimes it's a collection of prayers. That's why there are certain times in the year, like Andrew said, 40 Days for Life, which I believe happens in the fall, where those collections of prayers that people pray throughout those 40 days do make a difference. And lives are saved. Lives are saved during those times. And it's always wonderful to read about those in pro-life newsletters. I know I subscribe to pro-life union newsletters, and they definitely keep us up to date with how many babies they've saved on a sidewalk advocacy mission or in women that they've housed. And that's another great work that is going on, at least in the Philadelphia areas. I met a wonderful woman the other day, uh, just just a, a sweetheart and absolute joy, who works for Guiding Star Ministries outside of Philadelphia, which is a home for women who are pregnant, for women who have small children and maybe don't have a supportive partner, maybe suffer from abuse, maybe uh, definitely don't have a good home or a suitable home for their, them and their children. And so it's a house for them to reside in and they receive classes regarding motherhood, nutrition, spirituality, and Bible studies. They have, they help these women get their GEDs. So they have some educational background and they offer childcare support as well. It's just a really wonderful mission to also work to do something after these children are born. Right. Cause I, that's a big criticism. The pro-life union or pro-life movement in general gets is, well, you care about life so much what are you doing for these people after they're born and i think it's a big question we still have to ask because with all the happenings in the supreme court this year especially with this national case in the supreme court in which we'll hear a decision in a couple months we need to ensure that there is support right and we need to step up our game in in helping women and children after these children are born we certainly want them to continue with their pregnancy, but we also need to make sure that they're cared for and that we're not just going to leave them. And that's what that one woman from Genesis Pregnancy Center emphasizes in her story all the time is that we don't, their center doesn't just leave and abandon these women and their kids after the children are born, but they visit them and they invite them back week after week, month after month for up to two to three years after the child's born crazy two to three years they stay with these women in contact with them provide them counseling provide them baby care and maternity care products you know just tangible things that they need to raise a child it's a lot so they stick with them and they ensure that they're cared for and supported throughout the way so i think i would divert it from the question <laughs> quite a bit there but all in all a lot of opportunities to support an important mission yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, lots of good stuff. There is no shortage of ways to get involved. So 
thank you so much for coming on, Megan. This was great. We, uh, I really like how the focus was on what we can do, how people can talk about this with other people and how they can get involved. There's, there's a plenty of, of episodes of uh, podcasts and YouTube videos showing, you know, why this is so evil and what's really going on and the corruption and all that. But this was really about how to get involved and how to convince others, which is the American redemption way. So good work. Thanks. And thanks for having me on. Any final thoughts, guys? Oh, sorry. I interrupted. Can you say that again? Yeah. And thanks for having me on. I want to remind everyone that this, this is not just a woman's issue either. This is everybody. This affects all generations because when we eliminate one life, we, we eliminate an entire generation. It's powerful. It's a really powerful thought when you think about it. And we've, the fact that there have been 62 million abortions in the United States alone since 1973 when Roe v. Wade was passed, that's 62 million generations lost. But we can also reside in the hope, too, that truth and justice are on our side, that God is always supporting us, that prayer is power, and that even though it might seem small, we can always pray for the truth and, and for for protection of this vulnerable group of people, especially in today's world. And always remember that his love endures. All right. Uh, Steven, anything from you? No, I just wanted to say I appreciate uh, both of you sharing your experiences, especially Megan coming on. I, I know it's not easy to talk about the the horrors that are going on in our world but i think it's necessary and uh it's definitely a glimmer of hope in the darkness to those of us who are to those who think that it's impossible for us to create a, a better society for future generations because nothing's impossible with god that's right, Stephen. Well said. So thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, share this with your pro-life friends, maybe someone who is pro-life but hasn't gotten involved yet. Send it to them. And please remember to give us a five-star rating. You can do that on Spotify and on Apple and maybe Google, maybe some others. I don't know. Just take a look at your podcast app. And we'll see you next time.